We are in uh, our section in study of Galatians at the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 15 through 21, really. This, I put this in your outline as a summary of Paul's uh, message. Uh, it's, it's a summary of what I, he taught. It's a summary of what he, he preached. It's a summary of what he wrote about. And it, uh, man, it is really one of the most important passages uh, in terms of a summary. That, that's the best way to think about it, in a summary in the, in the New Testament. And it sets up what we will do as we begin to dig into chapter 3. And as we get into chapter 3, we're going to go over to, to James chapter 2, verse 14 and following, about the relationship between faith and the law. Salvation by grace through faith versus salvation by faith plus works. And so what Paul is doing is, is just a quick reminder here. He is answering the challenges that come from his enemies, I'll call them that, the Judaizers. Remember that term I used? Uh, it's not a biblical term, but it's a term that is used by most expositors to summarize Paul's enemies. Theologically, they are arguing that faith is fine, but you also need to be circumcised to keep the law, uh, the Sabbath, uh, feast days, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's setting up the possibility of, quote, two gospels, close quote, and possibly two churches, where you have this enormous division over the most important thing of the Christian faith, the gospel. And so, that, that transition from what he was talking about as we finished it last week, as he ends the evidence that he presents, we, up to this point he's presented seven pieces of evidence to, to uh, buttress the proposition that he has independent apostolic authority sourced in Jesus. It didn't come from man, it's not made up, it's sourced in Christ. Now he gives a brief exposition of what he taught, what he preached, what he lived, what he wrote about. So notice what he does. We ourselves are Jews by birth, which would be true of Paul. He was a Jew by birth. He was born a Jew and not Gentile sinners. It's interesting that he uses that phrase, Gentile sinners. Because that was a phrase that the Jewish leadership used to refer to non-Jews. They're Gentile sinners. What does that mean? By their ethnic origin and background, they're automatically sinners. And that dichotomy between Jews, the chosen people of God, who had the law, who had, who had that special revelation from God, who delivered them from bondage to Egypt, gave them his law at Mount Sinai, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, versus you Gentiles who don't know anything about this. We are the chosen people, and this dichotomy, the Jews even went so far as to call Gentiles dogs, a very demeaning and, and quite awful way to describe someone. And so Paul sets it up. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile centers. Yet, contrast, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in order that to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because works of the law will no one be justified. Did you notice something? Three times the phrase works of the law is used. Three times 
in those, those, those verses, 15 and 16, three times. Works of the law, works of the law, works of the law. He's setting up this, I'm going to use this strong word, this dichotomy between simplistic faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work and the works of the law. Faith versus works. And what does he say? He uses that word justified. You saw it in verse 16. You see it in the end of verse 16. You see it at the end of verse, uh, twice in verse 16, the middle and at the end. So as you see works of the law three times, you see the word justified three times. Let's talk a bit about that before we get into verse 17, because this is where it gets difficult. Now, if there is a word in the scripture, let me rephrase that. If there's a word in the New Testament that you should absolutely know, be certain of, and can define, it's the word justify as a verb or justification as a noun. You should know that. You should know how to define it. Just in case there's someone in this room or online that cannot do that, here is what you need to know. Justify or justification is a forensic term. It's a legal term. In Greek, it's dikaio. What it means is to be declared righteous. Okay? Who's declaring you righteous? Okay, obviously you didn't hear that question. So yeah, God is. Who is declaring you righteous? God is declaring you righteous. Why? This is what Paul is saying. Why is God declaring you righteous? By works of the law? Did you earn it? Did you merit it? Did you deserve it? By faith. Notice what he says. Please don't miss this. He keeps repeating it. At the end of verse 16, I should say it's really in the middle, through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Jesus Christ, justified by faith in Christ. See how many times he keeps repeating this? So this is extremely important premise of Paul's ministry. Justification, the declaration of God's righteousness, comes by faith. Now, this, I'm going to write something on the board. It isn't on the slide, so it's just something separate. I should have thought of it this way. This is what I'm going to do. Now, this is not a term that's used right here, but it defines what is happening in the process of justification, okay? Imputation defines what happens in the process of justification. Imputation. Our sin is placed on Jesus. His righteousness is placed on us. It's an alien righteousness. It isn't our righteousness that we either deserve, that we merit, or we earn. So how does this exchange, this is Hudson Taylor called this the great exchange, how, how does this exchange occur? By you and I placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Because we have placed our faith in Christ at the cross, which we just celebrated last Friday, Good Friday. The Father put the sin of Jesus Excuse me, the sin of the world on Jesus. Uh, Isaiah 53 prophesied that. The Gospels declare it as they give us the narrative of what happened on Good Friday. And if you go back and read, especially Mark's account, Jesus is placed on the cross at 9 a.m. in the morning. 
From 12 noon until 3 p.m. in the afternoon, there's darkness upon the earth. What is happening during that time of darkness? The Father is placing the sin of the world on his Son. And propitiation, justification, redemption, all those tremendous words of salvation in that circle of what we mean by salvation occurs in those three hours. Darkness. As the Father, in the words of Isaiah 53, the Father pours out his wrath on his Son. And propitiation, used four times in the New Testament, this wrath of God is satisfied by the sacrifice of his Son. So the result of that, it's an amazing thing that God does for us. The result of that is God, when we put our faith in his Son, then God declares us righteous. And that imputation, that righteousness of Christ becomes the righteousness of God. So that when the Father looks at me, what does he see? Not the righteousness of Jim Edmund, the righteousness of his Son. That's justification. And it's, <laughs> I haven't done that for months, have I? It's so warm, I've taken my jacket off. But it's, it's you know, I, I know this is something that maybe you're familiar with, but you, if you do not know this language, you can't talk in this language, justification, implication, you need to start to be able to talk about it. Because that is the core consequence of what happened last Friday when we celebrated Good Friday. And then this is beyond what Paul is saying. How do we know the father did all this, accepted all this, and engages all this? He brought his son back from the dead on Easter Sunday. Resurrection validated all this. It meant the father accepted the sacrifice. And the son paid the penalty for us. He died. Death is the penalty of sin. And resurrected. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, death, where is thy victory? It's swallowed up. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's, an, it's the amazing provision by the grace of God of salvation. And as, an aspect of, of, of our salvation is justification. And this exchange, which is called imputation, with the sin of the world placed on Jesus, and the righteousness that Jesus is, he is righteousness, is placed on us. That occurs by faith. Can I ask a question? Mm -hmm. So... Christ was innocent, correct? Correct. So can you say the sin on the, of the world was based on Christ and his innocence was placed on us? I, I want to make it stronger than that, though, Bill. It isn't just his innocence. It's his righteousness. Well, so innocence would be a dimension of it. But see, Jesus isn't only innocent. He's perfectly righteous. Right. I understand. But what I'm saying is a baby step for someone that doesn't understand Understand guilt and innocence. Yep. So you move from that to righteousness. Yeah, I mean, that's okay, as long as that's step one in, right. in explaining. But sure, absolutely. Because this is another thing, because you and I, this is what Paul talks about in Romans 6. We're born with the guilt and corruption, the nature of Adam. We're born condemned. So when, when Jesus dies on the cross, he takes that condemnation where we were once sinners, you know, we could not not sin. Now we have the capacity and power to not sin, which then becomes the process of sanctification. But this is now our position. This is how the Father looks at us. This is what Paul is saying, because he's, he's now going to, that's what he's doing in these verses, he's introducing the thesis of the book of Galatians. My message, my gospel message, is the message of justification. And it's, he's, he's hammering out, and you read the book of Romans, that's the, mate, that's the thesis of the book of Romans. Galatians is a mini-Romans. 
but it's Romans is just much, much more, much more complete in detail because it deals with a lot of other aspects of our faith. But this matter of, of justification, if I could hold you accountable, I would force you to tell me the definition of justification each time I meet you. But I can't do that, so I won't do that. Robin, go ahead. I, well, there are so many questions that arise from this discussion. I, I, I was ready to ask my first question, then went off and talked about the fact that it may be, maybe is, is not um, righteous when you were born condemned. It's a little different view than most people think of babysisms as innocents. And it's probably just because they hadn't had time to do anything and set all their heads on, um, which is completely selfish. Uh, so babies are the most selfish human beings on earth. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean that right. They just are. They will make you make your life miserable if you don't meet their needs. So, so good behavior has to be. It's not built into. Oh yeah. Did you have to teach your children how to be good? I'm, now we're we're gonna. I, I'm gonna. I have to teach you, Joanna and John. I have to teach you something that's going to take a long time. I want to teach you to disobey daddy. <laughs> I didn't have to do that. They instinctively did it. I had to teach him to obey me. Now, that is a hard thing for people to understand, but that is an indication of the guilt and corruption of Adam. So, so two other questions. One of them I think is not relevant, but I wanted to ask it. So the, the dichotomy outlining this is works versus faith. Is, is, is that a dichotomy? Are there no other alternatives to justification? And is that important? I'm not sure how you're using the word dichotomy there. Is there no yeah, other okay. means to justification yeah. answers yeah. yet? There is no other means. Two alternatives. Um, faith or works. Okay. Are there any other alternatives? No. No. That's it. It is either, I mean, the dichotomy he's setting up is you either come to God through his grace, where you by faith apply that to your life, or you work your way. I know you probably don't read this, but Sunday morning they always, in the World Herald, they always have a little uh, column of two or three pastors that give a little summary of a message. You ever read that? Did you ever see that? It's very inclusive. And it's very inclusive, but... Uh, and what I mean by that is Jews, and there's a Muslim. And the Muslim imam out at the, the tri-base center thing, he said, I thought this was so clear. It could not have any clearer. This, this Muslim imam said, many of you who are the Christian faith do not understand this. But Islam teaches something very, very basic. You must earn and merit the favor of Allah. When I read that, I thought, oh, my goodness, that couldn't have been clearer. I mean, he's not excusing it. He's not in any way downplaying it. He's at the very center of what he believes, and that's exactly what the Quran teaches. And I just, oh, well, the reason I, I, was trying, I said that to Peggy on Sunday morning, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago, I said, hey, this couldn't be clearer. And she said, you know, yes, honey, that's true. I mean, she's really excited about all these profound things I share with her. She said, yeah, honey, that's really good. Thanks. <laughs> But it's just, you know, I'm excited about it because it was just so clear. And I, I, I felt like, and I thought, that wouldn't help. I'm not going to waste my breath. But I thought somebody should just, because I don't think a world would print necessarily, but somebody just write that. You have just laid out the key marker 
of difference between biblical Christianity and Islam. Because this is what Paul is saying. You cannot earn your way to God. You just can't do it. And Jesus, that you remember, she had a diagram that crosses the bridge between sinful humanity. You've seen it, haven't you? And you cross that bridge by faith. That's how you get to God. Jesus says very clear in John 14, 6. No man comes to the Father except through me. You cannot come to the Father except through Christ. So, uh, right. that's three hours of darkness. No, three hours. Jesus is on the cross for six hours. Three hours is the darkness. I want to turn this back on him, basically, because it came out of what sound, and he was made sin for us. Was every one of our sins, let's take the guys from this room, not the world, not sinful or our sinful, but every one of the sins before we came to Christ in the world of the soul. Were they laid upon Christ at that point in time? D- during that period of the darkness? Yes. The Good Friday? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. I can't imagine. Well, it's, yeah, it, it is, it's, at one level, you can utter those sentences or you can read Mark or Matthew and you can see what's happening, but to think about and even more, more, perhaps more importantly, think deeply about what's really happening there. The Father is punishing the Son for our sin. He's judging the Son for our sin. And in the words of Isaiah, he's pouring out his wrath on his Son. That's how Isaiah prophesied it in chapter 53. And that's, that's just, you, we need to think about it. We need to think deeply. We need to meditate upon it. Because that's what Jesus meant in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And would that have included the people not yet born? Yes, 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 absolutely. Every human being from Adam to the last human being will draw back from Christ. Ends everything. Once for all. And once for all. I mean, it's... I just can't imagine that's right. I mean, this was the horror. Well, I don't know the word to put it. This was the horror of what happened in those hours of darkness on Friday, April the third, eighty thirty-three. And that brings another. Some of my friends said, "I've heard, and I've heard this used both to support the reality of Christ or to dispute that there was a total eclipse of the sun at that time." Does that really explain the three hours of darkness? Well, you can try to find a natural explanation for it. Possibly. I mean, you know, whatever happened and whatever the cause, it's like trying to define what was the star at Bethlehem on Christmas? What was the star? Well, you know, about 16 different explanations for it. And uh, to me, well, any one of them is fine. The, key, the point of Scripture is the, the, the Magoi from the east, that's the Greek word that's used in wise men, the Magoi from the east used that to get to Bethlehem. I don't care what it was. God told them to use that to get to Bethlehem. If you want to explain it in a comet, meteor, or whatever you want to, it doesn't matter. I don't care. That's how the three Magoi, or not three, the Magoi got 
Bethlehem. That's what the Bible's telling us. You believe what that is happening up in the sky, whatever it is. I don't have any problem astronomically that it might have been a comet. It, might, it could be a variety of different things. That's not the key. The key is not that's some miracle. The key is that's how the Magoi found Bethlehem. That's what's important. <laughs> the, the other thing is that the solar calendar is constant because of God's omnipotence. And traced back, and there was no eclipse on that time. On that, I see. that day. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's so clear your explanation of why it was dark. It was because of the lane. You've experienced a total eclipse of the sun. Yes, I have. It's not dark. It's, it's darker, but it's not dark. Right. Yeah, it's just, I mean, to me, that's, that's Satan's deceptions. But to me, you're focusing on the wrong thing. You're trying to explain what happened. It doesn't matter how that happened. What matters is what's God doing in that time of darkness. You want to try to explain that, it's fine. But don't burn the brain cells and miss what's really important. What's really important is what happened in those hours of darkness. Verse 17. Now, Paul has laid out three times works of the law, three times justified in Christ. He's laid that out clearly. Now, verse 17, this is what's going to happen in the next couple of verses. It's like an imaginary objector stands up and says, wait a minute, Paul. Notice the first word of verse 17. But if in our endeavor... To be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? So, what Paul is doing here is he's answering what undoubtedly was one of the main points of the Judaizers. You don't need the law. You don't need to observe the law. Okay. You come to faith in Christ. Which, in your words, Paul, sets aside, fulfills the law. Doesn't that then encourage sinful behavior? Doesn't that then encourage people to be sinners? I have fire insurance. Now I can do whatever I want. I mean, you're following me? This is what Paul is answering. The objector who stands up and says, okay, since justification by faith and sets aside the law, does that not then encourage sinful behavior? Because now people, I'm using that very cynical way of putting it, people now have fire insurance, and they can live however they want. So Jesus sends a servant of sin. In effect, what you're saying is you're making Jesus a servant of sin. Jesus is actually facilitating sin. So the, the we is the new Christians. Mm -hmm. Okay, now let's let's make sure. And, and I mean, I want you online and here in the room. I want you to understand what Paul is saying here, because this is what his critics are saying. You're preaching a free grace gospel that facilitates sin, because now people don't have the law. And they can't follow the law because God gave the law to set the boundaries. 
God gave the law to reveal his moral character, and Israel was to follow that as they walked with him. What's Paul's answer? ESV translates it certainly not. It's meganoita in Greek. It's the strongest way you can say no in the Greek language. No! <laughs> now, I, I want to make, make sure you understand this. Because what is really happening here is something that Paul's going to start to talk about in chapters 5 and 6 of this book. It is the confusion of the difference between justification and sanctification. Because somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, their sin has been put on Jesus, they've appropriated that by faith, and now the righteousness of Christ has been put on them. That's their new identity. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, they're a new creature in Christ. Their new identity is they now are identified with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's their position. Here's the question. Will they go on sinning? Yes. Because that's the process of sanctification. Because in the process of sanctification, you still have the capability to sin, but you also have the capability and power to not sin. And he's going to develop this in chapters 5 and 6 with the teaching of the Holy Spirit. But you see, listen, just because a person comes to faith in Christ is now declared righteous and justified, that doesn't mean they're perfect. They now begin the process of being transformed into the image of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the definition of sanctification. So we also said, does that make Jesus an agent of sin? No! You're misunderstanding. You don't get the difference between these two fundamental dimensions of who we are in Christ. So Paul can answer defiantly, and I use that intentionally, defiantly, no! He screamed it. Meganoita, no. Okay. What if, what if I come to faith in Jesus Christ and I still want to observe the law? That's verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, Glenn, I'm sorry, I'm going to use the board again. I sent him. I sent that to him already. Yeah, we got the picture. We actually can see the board pretty good on the screen. Oh, good. Okay. Well, here you are. <clears throat> here you are. This is you. This is me. We were a Jewish person, or a a, a person. Okay, you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. You're a new believer. You're a new creation in Christ and so on. And you make the decision, okay, I'm going to go back. Okay, I put my faith in Christ, but I'm going to go back, and I want to go back to observing the law. I'm going to keep the Sabbath faithfully. I'm going to go Passover celebrations. I'm going to, uh, uh, I'm going to observe all the new moon festivals. Uh, I'm going to observe the burnt offerings and peace offerings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Paul says, okay, what good is that? What does that show you? 
What does that accomplish for you? He says one thing. It shows you one thing. That I'm a sinner. That's what it shows you. It doesn't accomplish anything else. See, please note that again. If I rebuild what I tore down, that's a metaphor using a, a building metaphor. I've torn down my adherence to and devotion to the law. I no longer do that. I come to faith in Jesus Christ, and I make the decision to go back and rebuild what I tore down. Okay, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to start observing the law again. What good does that do? In the process of sanctification, what good does that do? He says it shows you one thing, that you're a transgressor. And the Greek word that's translated transgressor is, I have missed the mark. All it demonstrates to me is that I'm a sinner, which is the main purpose of the law in the first place. We're going to see this as he develops this in chapter 3. Why did, give the, why did God give the law? He, he gives four or five reasons. But one of the reasons God gives the law is to show the depth of human sin. So if you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you go back to observing the law, what's it doing? It's just showing what you already knew. I'm a sinner. It's not helping you. It's not adding to anything. It's not enabling you in the process of sanctification. It's just demonstrating something you already knew. You're a sinner. You have transgressed God's law. You have missed God's perfect mark. Well, I already knew that. Now, I'm getting real animated, but do you understand what he says? This is why this is so brilliant. In such a short few verses, this is brilliant what Paul's doing. Don't try to add keeping the law to the process of sanctification, because keeping the law only shows one thing, which you already knew, that you're a sinner. It doesn't negate your salvation. Not at all. No, no, no. no. Yeah, he said, yeah, it has no practical, functional purpose and effect in the process of sanctification. It just demonstrates what you already knew. That I transgress God's law. <laughs> Anybody show this verse to the sons of All I can answer is I haven't, so I don't know. <clears throat> but, you know. Now verse 20. Now are you with me? Yeah, I'm not just really with me, but with Paul. Do you understand what he's doing? This is so, I mean, I just, I'm amazed. Every, I study this again. I've studied this millions of times. I studied again Monday. I just thought, you know, Lord, this is amazing. It's so clear and succinct. In two verses, what Paul's done. He's dismantling legalism. He's dismantling any works-based righteousness. He's dismantling any human effort to get to Christ. And he's showing that the law which Christ has fulfilled serves absolutely no purpose in the process of sanctification. All it does is show you what you already knew, that you're a sinner. Now, chapter 2, verse 20. Glenn, here's where you might want to throw that up. I sent, those of you here in the room, I sent this, well, Fred sent it in the notice of class today. And this is what it looks like. So if you want to get it out, you can. The guys, the guys that are online can see it. I want to read the verse, and we're going to take it apart. Verse 20. Verse 19 and 20. For through the law, I died to the law. 
so that I might live to God. Very, very clear. The law demanded death. For those who sin, the law demands death. How many sin? Everybody. How many die? Everybody. But Jesus paid the penalty by dying. And I'm now identified with him. So because I put my faith in him, I'm now alive to God. I'm not dead. The law does not do this. My faith does. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I no longer live. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 is one of the most triumphant verses in the Bible, I believe. It summarizes. And what I did on the chart, which looks like this, which the guys are looking at online, which you, you would have a copy of because Fred sent it to you, is you have a contrast between the law and grace. And on the one side, you would put works. On the other side, grace, you put faith. On the law side, you put I. On the grace side, you put Christ. On the works side, you put the flesh. On the grace side, you put the spirit. On the works side, you would put the works of the law. On the grace side, you put the fruit of the Spirit. On the law side, you would put, I no longer live. On the grace side, you would put, Christ lives in me. This is the transformation that the gospel brings. Yet not I, but Christ. I, I pray that it's the old King James way to translate. I pray that every time I get up to preach, not I, but Christ. Paul is saying something here. The mm -hmm. law does do this. I, let, let's take this apart now. You can look at the chart when you go home, go to your computer or your phone or whatever. But I want to concentrate now on the verse and we'll go back and look at the chart when we're done. Let's look at this. First of all, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Period. It's a declaration. Okay, what does that mean? You, you wait a minute. Last Friday was Good Friday. I wasn't hanging on the cross. That, that's ridiculous. What do you mean? Oh, this is the, this is the point. This is Galatians, Galatians two twenty part A, the very first part, is what Paul argues in chapter six of the Book of Romans. It's the whole argument in chapter 6. In God the Father's eyes, I'm dead, buried, resurrected, and exalted with Christ. Dead, buried, resurrected, and exalted with Christ. That's my identity. When the Father looks at me, he sees his son. That sounds a little weird, but that's exactly what Paul, I am crucified with Christ. That's my new identity. Jesus died on the cross for me. And so the Father will look at me as if I were hanging on that cross, dying for my sin. 
but he, I didn't. Who did? Jesus. And I'm identified now with Jesus. Well, I erased it. That was in the previous thing. Because they had great exchange. So he can declare, I am crucified with Christ. And you have a new identity. I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The old self, the flesh, positionally is dead. I'm not alive. And that's the whole promise of eternal life. Eternal life begins the moment you put your faith in Christ. That eternal life, because now nothing will break that. Your predestination means your destiny has been predetermined. Your destiny is set. You're headed for heaven. You're headed for eternal life. It begins now. So he's not dead in his sin. He's alive to Christ. Remember Gloria Grace's great little worship chorus, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. It's one of my favorite worship chorus. Because it summarizes the point of Galatians 2.20. Because he lives, I live. I no longer fear. I have a whole new way of looking at life. Because eternity is my predetermined destiny. And it begins now. That's what Paul is saying. It's not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. That's your position. That becomes the process of transformation, sanctification. I begin to learn that. Every day I begin to learn. Help me, Lord, to choose you, not flesh. To, to, when I see this, Lord, I don't want to look a second time. When, when, this, when this thought comes into my mind, I don't want to dwell on it. And I, I don't know how you guys are, but I am constantly talking to the Lord like that. Constantly. Help me not take a second look. Lord, I don't want to deal with that thought. That image is in my mind. I don't want it to work. I don't know how you guys do it, but that's what he means. You now have a new power, a new enablement, a new identity, a new position. All those things relate to what he's arguing. It's not I, but Christ. It's not I, but Christ. Because Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Faith defines not only my, well, again, I wish that, not only that exchange, my sin on Christ, his righteousness on me. It's all defined how I live. I am walking in loving obedience, trusting and having confidence and faith in my Savior. It is no longer I, but Christ lives in me. The living Christ who is resurrected from the dead lives in me. How? Through his Holy Spirit. I'm his new temple. And the life I live in the flesh, other by faith, son, who loved me and gave himself for me. Those two are connected. His love was manifested by his willingness to give himself for me. It's substitution. He died in my place, which is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, etc. <laughs> We sometimes forget the Holy Spirit abides us that we can he be our guide just hour by hour. And I think <clears throat> sometimes this is me. I sometimes talk about my hand and do this and that and other things that we do. And I don't call him enough. To ask him, please guide me, please guide me. And he will be 
but and he always has been quick to respond to that. It's so real now. It's almost like a habit you have to get into. It is exactly a habit. It's a pattern of life. Absolutely. I'm reading a new book by Mason King on the disciplines of Krishna. It's a short little book. I'm reading it in the morning. And I'm reading about three or four pages. And this is what he's talking about. And that's why I love the little book. We come to faith in Christ. We must develop new habits and new patterns of living. Because our old habits and old patterns have got us into trouble. The new habits and new patterns cultivate the righteous position that we already have. It's the process of sanctification. And I love that. Those new hats, exactly what you're talking about. Those new habits and new patterns, that is your responsibility. Because it didn't take me very long to know why I got into trouble. And it was the habits and patterns I was following. Therefore, I must get rid of those old habits and substitute new habits, the new pattern. And it's just, and the, the power of that appeal is what Paul's talking here about in these three verses. The power of this is this is your new identity. This is who you are. Start living it. This is who you are in Christ. Let's start living it. Your new identity is to lead to transformation. It just you don't sit in a rocking chair and say, okay, well, I'll just sit here and you make me holy. That's that's silly. That's not how it works. <laughs> how Clear it is that we easily get confused. Uh, so I think you're talking about, are you talking about you know, the old man versus the new man? That's one way you can put it. Mm -hmm. um, first, but it is so easy to get confused, and, and I, I, the only explanation I have like this in um, this context, context is. That's Satan. Oh, yeah. Not let you understand that that's what this means. That you have, you're not earning your way, but you do have to make a conscious decision. And then there's something that I don't think you mentioned. Rightly, that's obedience. Oh, yeah. yeah. No. And, you know, I'm always motivated by something Jesus said when you add the issue of obedience. Jesus says in the upper room, if you love me, keep my commandments. Actually, it's first-class condition. Since you love me, keep my commandment. So our response to what Jesus has done for us, and we love him because of what he's done, therefore obey me. And obedience is now motivated not by that sort of Damocles, that old Greek thing you remember of that, sort of down hanging over your head that God's going to whack me. No. I'm now motivated by my love for him. And that, that's why we, we begin to understand that our sin really hurts God. It hurts him when he sees his child behaving in a way that's dishonoring to him. That hurts the Lord. Paul speaks in Ephesians 4, grieving the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want to do that, Lord. Help me. I don't want to do I can't do this on my own, but I want. And help me to get the victory over this sin or whatever the issue might be. Which means. Which explains, I think, it's James that talks about. Um, uh, I suppose it's obedience, but, but clearly, so you're obeying not out of obligation or pleasure. You're obeying out of gratitude. That's part of what I think some people mean by having. 
Well, you're being out of gratitude and love for the Lord because of what he's done. That's right. That's right. Our, ch- our children, I think most kids, it was for the most part true, especially my son, they delight in pleasing you when they're little. Joanne, I'm not sure she ever delighted in pleasing dad. She was the epitome of a strong-willed child, but still is. But that strong will is really good because of, of, of her little boy who's down syndrome. She needs that focus and channeling, and God has channeled that so wonderfully. Kids, and so that's the same thing. Do you want to please your Heavenly Father? In Ephesians chapter 1 is a great prayer. And Paul prays in the month that you will do that which is pleasing to the Heavenly Father. Do you want to please the Heavenly Father? Yes. How do you do that? By walking loving obedience. Independence on the Spirit and the Lord Jesus, etc. Now, we're almost out of time, but are you with me on all this? And really, are you with Paul? This is, this is majestic what he's doing here. We're also, if you remember, these few verses, don't negate, you know, feed my sheep. No, and any it doesn't negate any of that. that, no. So we have to keep in mind. Yeah. There's matter. so many other things, tentacles, but it's the summary of our position and our identity. And what the Lord wants us to do with all of this. This is who I am. Now live it. This is my identity. Now live it. Look at verse 21 so I can finish this. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness, literally, if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Does that make sense? The concern of these Judaizers and now the concern of Paul is, look, what I'm saying, I do not nullify the grace of God by talking about this. Because listen, if justification came through the law, then why did Jesus have to come? I didn't hear anyone say amen to that, and that was a great place for you to say amen. If there be any other way, and the answer was no. <laughs> that's, it, that's, it. Yeah, that's it, Russ. I mean, he's just saying, if you could earn your way to the Lord, you could merit, if you could earn justification through the law, then Jesus didn't have to come. This is what he's going to explain in chapter 3. That was not. The purpose of the law wasn't for you to merit the favor of God so that he would save you. The law was not about salvation. And I cannot, I still run into Christians who say, well, there are two ways of salvation. The Old Testament salvation by law and New Testament salvation by grace. That person does not understand the Bible. That is not what the Bible teaches. How was Abraham saved? Because don't forget, Abraham was saved before the law. He was saved before justification. I mean, excuse me, before circumcision. He was saved by faith. But yeah, he, he, well, in Genesis 15, 6, he, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. His faith produced justification. Yeah, and that's what he used that argument in Romans 4. He says something very simple God is always justified by faith, period. He's never justified by works. If that's true, then law, there's not two men's of salvation in the Bible, by law and by grace. That's wrong, by faith. 
And we talked about that before. I hope you remember that, but anyway. Yeah. So, so he's just saying, if, if you could earn your way to God, then Jesus died for no purpose. He didn't have to come, which is absolutely ludicrous, because the whole point of the scripture says, no matter what we do, we cannot merit God's favor. This is what, when I read that by that Muslim imam out of the Tri-Center in the paper the other Sunday, I just thought, so many Christians still believe that. Well, I hope I did enough to earn God. Do you ever use the EE questions? If you're standing before God and he would ask you, "What? Uh, why should I let you into my heavens? Huh? So you, well, I lived a good life. I, <laughs> I practiced philanthropy. I helped old ladies across the street. I don't swear anymore. I stopped drinking. I think I'm going to make it. There's an awful lot of Americans who go to church. That's what their answer will be. I've asked that question for many, many people. That is exactly how people answer. So basically, I think, therefore, I am not. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think there's, there's two doors. Grace. Christians that think because Christ died, they Yeah. Um, that this, this, this free grace gospel means, okay, I put it very cynically earlier. I have fire insurance, now I can live however I want. Paul answers that in Galatians and in Romans, Meganoita, that you misunderstand totally the effects of the gospel. Somebody online had a question. Uh, I was just saying there are, there are two doors. It's just that only Jesus could make it through. You've got to be this good to get into heaven. The rest of yep. us have to depend on him. That's exactly right. Because he perfectly fulfilled the law among the many, many, many things he did and accomplished. Therefore, we follow him to heaven by putting our faith in him. Amen. Okay. If this were a class, I would ask you to write a thought paper on verse 17 through 21. But since it isn't, I won't waste my breath. But, man, I asked you to read this last week, uh, and I hope maybe you did, and just reread it again, because it is one of the most masterful summaries of the truth of the gospel I believe there is, making it clear that it's by faith plus nothing that we're justified. And the fact that Jesus had to come makes every difference in the world. All right. We only have a few minutes. Are there any are any questions online or any questions here before I, I want to introduce the next uh, two chapters, chapter yep. three? And <clears throat> I, I got a Brent. question for you. <clears throat> we went and saw his only son last night. Um, we talked about faith. I want to thank you for, for covering the the fathers. Uh, you covered Abraham really in depth here a couple couple sessions ago. That really right. was interesting to compare that movie with. Um, with what you covered in class, too. So thank you for that. Have you been able to see that movie yet? His what, what's the movie? Then? His Only what? Son. Oh, I have not. No. It, it came out over Easter. It's about Abraham and um, taking him to sacrifice his son. Uh, Isaac going to Mount Moriah. No, yep. I did not. I have not seen Has anybody else seen that? Okay, Rob's seen it. Yeah. 
If you get a chance to see it, it's it's worth a couple hours. Okay. Is it uh, from if you, a couple guys in the room here have seen it? It's it pretty accurate biblically to the text. I mean, they took a little creative license, but I believe it is pretty oh. accurate. Okay, good. Well, usually they do. No, I'm gonna have to see it. I have not seen that. So, <clears throat> well, what, when we study James chapter two, as we get in chapter three, we're gonna switch over to James. James will use the event in Mount Moriah not as an illustration of Abraham's justification, but as an illustration of Abraham's obedience in the process of sanctification. Yep. He's going to say because of Abraham's faith, he trusted God to take care of his son when he walked up the mountain of Mount Moriah. And so Abraham, excuse me, James uses Abraham as an illustration of faith in action, not justifying faith. And that's going to be one of the, as we set up this comp comparison between Paul and James, James is talking about, you're just, a, he, in effect, this is what I'm going to argue. The book of James answers this question, what does a justified life look like? How do we live? You said it best, I think. Yeah. How do we live now that we've got all this? That's right. How do we live? That's, that's, what, James, that's what James is all about. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's the whole point. <laughs> And that's why James is so powerful, because it answers that question, okay, how then now do I live with my new identity? Read the book of James. And that's how we're going to look at it, okay? Cool. Thank you. Okay. Fred had a question or a comment. The position in Christ is like, do you remember when you first conquered riding the bicycle? introduce because it's uh, I've got to leave now as we transition next week to chapter three we go from Paul's defense of his apostolic authority chapters one and two to a defense of the gospel and chapters three and four you will see the chapters three and four are very theological they're heavy in theology which is good but it's fascinating how Paul introduces this section because he asks, let me take a minute, just to, just to illustrate why this is so important. He begins this theological defense with four rhetorical questions to the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And he uses that word ESV translation bewitched. It's literally who's giving you the evil eye? Who, who has given you this delusional 
understanding of the gospel. It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is what I taught. And then he asked the first question, and I'm going to stop with that. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by faith? How would you answer that question? Don't answer it. That's where we'll start next week with that first question. And what he does is he asks four rhetorical questions to alert them to the silliness of going back to the law. Here's where you are. You put your faith in Christ. Why in the world do you want to go back there? Why do you want to add that back into your life? Because, by the way, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? We'll answer that question next week. Okay? I want you to be excited about the things of God. Are you excited about the things of God? Amen. Okay. I have my first question. Oh, good. But you're going to wait because I'm going to pray. I've got, I've got to leave here. Father, we thank you so much for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for the clarity uh, of, his, of his words in the book of Galatians. I love verse 17 through 21. It, it is so masterful how he deals with this objector, this Judaizer who is criticizing what he taught. And he simply shows, if you go back to the law, the law only does one thing. It shows you're a sinner, and you already knew that. We have a new identity. I am crucified with Christ. Lord, help us to remember that. Each man here in the room and on, online, our new identity is we are death, buried, dead, buried, and resurrected with Christ. We're exalted with Christ. That's our new position. That's our new identity. That's positional truth. And it now affects how we live the rest of our lives. This is what Paul's going to start to develop. Thank you for the clarity of this word from the book of Galatians. Be with these men online as well in the room. We are men of faith. We have this new identity, and we want to live it triumphantly and victoriously for you. Help us to represent you well in this world. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.